Father, we thank you that nothing will separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we praise you that having given us Christ, that right along with Christ, you'll give us all things. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit who lives in us and seals us until the day of our promised possession. We praise you that your Spirit is praying in us and giving us life. And we praise you that Jesus is praying for us and interceding for us. And we praise you for this moment when we get to hear from your word. Fix our eyes on Christ. Fill our hearts with hope. Strengthen our faith and help us to walk in obedience and love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The, the older I get, the less interested I am in a certain kind of Christmas. The less interested I am in the Christmas of um, paintings with very beautiful families. Mom and dad and maybe two and a half kids gathered around the fireplace with the stockings hanging sipping cocoa or eggnog, just perfect. It's okay if that's your family. I'm not, I'm not knocking that at all. Don't get me wrong. I just don't think that's what Christmas is about. Why don't we see paintings of single moms with five kids struggling to give anything to the children? Why don't we see paintings of homeless people under bridges, maybe even with mental health problems, unaware that it's Christmas? Why don't we see paintings of prostitutes stuck between decisions they would really rather not make and lives that feel far beyond accessibility? I mean, who's Christmas for? If we believe Hallmark, and if we believe those certain movie channels, Christmas is basically for those people who have it all together, uh, but maybe just need a little encouragement. They're feeling slightly depressed or slightly down. Uh, maybe they're between jobs, but they're pretty much guaranteed a future. The question becomes, is that Christmas? Is that the first Christmas? Is that the picture of the Bible? The older I get, I want a Christmas for the ratchet. The older I get, I want a Christmas for the trap. I want a Christmas that looks like the first Christmas. And that's what we want to turn our attention to this morning. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin this series on the early life of Jesus. Take some scenes from the Gospels to really look at Jesus and to think about why he came. And in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, Matthew begins his Gospel with Jesus' family tree, with a genealogy. He's tracing really where Christ comes from, from a human perspective. He's looking at Jesus' family. And beloved, it's ratchet. It's broken. In our day of Therapeutic terms, it's dysfunctional. 
It's not a family sitting by the fireplace with stockings sipping eggnog. It's a family with a lot of brokenness and a lot of need. Look there at Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1 tells us that this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus. It's an interesting phrase. It's the same phrase that we find some ten times in the book of um, Genesis. The genealogy of, the genealogy of. It's, It's the way the writer of Genesis lets us know that he's beginning a new chapter in God's redemptive history. And Matthew perhaps is signaling that to us too. That something new is about to enter the world in terms of how God saves people. But it's the genealogy of Jesus. The Greek here is the same phrase, as I said, that's used in Genesis, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Matthew is helping us to understand something in this genealogy about the the purposes of genealogy. In the Old Testament, they're used to prove whether or not someone is actually an Israelite, whether or not they belong to the covenant people of God. And ultimately, the genealogy would be used as a way of certifying who really is the Messiah, who really is the Christ. And from the start, Matthew emphasizes in verse 1 three titles, that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. He's the Messiah. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And in that sense, Matthew is sort of gathering up all of salvation history, all of the redemption promises that God has made to Israel through significant periods of time. Matthew tells us in verse 17 that he divides the genealogy into three generations or three sections of 14 generations. So he's doing something stylistic here. This is not an exhaustive genealogy. He's got a theological purpose in mind. He's being creative a little bit with the genealogy. There are some generations that are left out while he emphasizes some others. But it does divide into three nice, neat sections. The first part of the genealogy, from verse 2 to verse 6, is from Abraham to David. And there, Matthew is focusing on the promises that God made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. From verse 6 to verse 11, he focuses on King David, the first of the the, the sort of great kings of Israel, uh, down to the point where the last king goes off into exile, conquered by Babylon. And then from verse 12 to 16, he focuses on the exile and those who return from exile under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Three significant divisions of Israel's history. One family full of brokenness and dysfunction and an overriding promise that God would send to them a Savior. If you're familiar with the genealogies of the Bible and Luke and Matthew, you know that Luke and Matthew give us different genealogies. Matthew is writing like a historian. He gives us a more more exhaustive, uh, linear genealogy. Uh, Matthew here is writing not like a historian, but like an evangelist. He's writing to make it clear that there is a gospel that features a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. That's what those three titles mean, actually. So what we want to do is consider Matthew's main point here, that all the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. And he breaks that out by proving that Jesus is the son of Abraham, Jesus is the son of David, and Jesus is the Christ. And the question for us is, is Jesus ours? Do we know him? 
Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Methan, and Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. First thing we want to observe in this genealogy is that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Notice there, verse 2 begins with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Every time I read that, I can't help but think of uh, KRS-One. Old school hip-hop fans. <laughs> See, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob stand at the head of the Jewish faith and the Jewish nation. These are the founding fathers of the nation and the religion, if you will. Now, Matthew emphasizes the, the promise to Abraham and connects Jesus to Abraham because Jesus is meant to be understood as the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. What was that promise? Look in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. This is where God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and, and says to Abraham these words, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is God's redemptive plan with Abraham to take a single man, to grow him into a nation, and through that nation to bless all the nations of the earth. This is the Abrahamic covenant, the, the Abrahamic promises. Then in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, the Lord makes it clear how he's going to fulfill this promise to Abraham. It writes there, through your seed, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in Galatians 3, verse 16. 
And he tells us who this seed is. He says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, notice there, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, singular, meaning one person who is Christ. So all the promise to Abraham to bless all the nations through him, through his seed, is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. Now this lineage is interesting. And throughout this part of, of the genealogy in verses 2 to 6, we are reminded of people who in their own way were symbols or types of Christ. Certain situations or with their whole lives, they served as Old Testament commercials to this coming seed, Old Testament pictures of this coming one who really would fulfill the promises of God. For example, God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. At the last moment before the blade fell, God provided a ram in the bush to be the actual sacrifice. Or consider Jacob. Jacob, whose name becomes Israel. And Israel, the nation, becomes, uh, is called in the Old Testament God's son. That title given to Jacob and given to Israel was a pointer to the true son who would come. Or Judah. Judah gives rise to that clan which was uh, faithful to God the longest among all the tribes of Israel. And we're told in the Old Testament, out of Judah will come the lion of the tribe of Judah. A title pointing toward the coming of the Messiah. And perhaps you're familiar with this beautiful story of Ruth. So you may recall that Boaz in that story is what's known in the Old Testament as a kinsman redeemer. He has a special responsibility as a, a relative to um, Ruth's mother-in-law to, to redeem Ruth, to marry her, and to keep her in the family. And that kinsman-redeemer theme points forward to our elder brother, Christ, who redeems us as his bride. So not only is Jesus related to these fathers of the nation and the religion, but in many ways their lives are just commercials pointing forward to Jesus. But notice something else, something unusual about the genealogy. Matthew includes four women in the genealogy. Genealogies are normally reckoned through the, the, the men, through a, a sort of patrol lineage. But in four places here, Matthew inserts the names of, of women in the genealogy. Notice in verse 3, Tamar. What a tragic story was Tamar's. She was married to a son of Judah who died. Then because of that kinsman-redeemer law, she married a younger brother to her first husband, another son of Judah, who also died. And then Judah promised her a third son who was too young to marry at the time. And he said, but when he grows old enough, he will marry you. And he grew to be old enough, and Judah never gave his son to marry Tamar. So Tamar now basically um, forced into this situation of tremendous vulnerability, she pretends to be a prostitute, goes out the side of the road. Judah comes along, sees her, and goes into her, as the Bible puts it. She becomes pregnant with the two twins who are listed here. And when it comes to light, and she did this transaction with him and said, give me your signet ring and your staff as, as sort of a down payment on the payment you, had, you haven't given me. 
And so when it comes to light that she was pregnant and in Judah's home, which would have been a scandalous thing, Judah and the crowd come to uh, basically stone Tamar, and Judah asks the question, whose children are these? Who's, who's, you know, who's gotten you pregnant? And she says, the man to whom belongs this signet ring and his staff. This is better than TV, y'all. <laughs> Way better than TV. And Judah says, you are more righteous than I am. And perhaps as a kind of defense of these women, the Bible lists them here in the genealogy of the Lord. Or consider Rahab, there in verse 5. She's the wife of Salmon and the mother of Boaz. The only Rahab mentioned in Scripture is the, the prostitute who helps Joshua and the spies to get into Jericho as Israel is coming into the land. So in Tamar, we have one who pretended to be a prostitute. Here in Rahab, we have one who was a prostitute. And yet, she not only helps the Israelites in the fulfillment of God's promise to come into the land and to conquer Jericho, but here she is in the genealogy of the Lord. She's one from whom the Lord descends. We mentioned Ruth a moment ago. A whole book is dedicated to her and the story of her mother-in-law, Naomi. It's curious, Ruth would be mentioned at all. Actually, any of these women would be mentioned at all in the genealogy of the Lord because they're all Gentiles. Ruth herself is a Moabite. And you remember that the Moabites were basically um, judged and cursed by God uh, and not allowed to be uh, among the people of God for generations because they had opposed Israel when they were coming into the promised land. So here you got one who should have been cursed and kept outside, not only inside, declaring to Naomi, your God will be my God, but actually a mother, if you will, of the Savior. The fourth woman is mentioned in verse 6. She's simply called Uriah's wife. We know her by name to be Bathsheba, the lady with whom David committed adultery. And here Bathsheba is, having been taken advantage of by a man in power, having been placed in the difficult position of having her husband murdered by that same man in power and then taken into his family. Here she is, unnamed, not as a slight perhaps, but unnamed and memorialized in the lineage of our Lord. I love this because it means that women are not an afterthought in the mind of God. It's interesting, the, the Old Testament Jewish writings give four women special attention in the Old Testament genealogies, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. But the genealogy of Matthew gives four other women special attention, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, all Gentiles and, and all of whom were involved in some way in unseemly or scandalous and difficult, oppressive situations. But a woman's circumstances and her reputation do not determine her usefulness to God and his plans. And it's not just that the women were seemly, unseemly. Abraham, the father of the faithful, this chump gave his wife to Pharaoh and pretended that she was his sister. He didn't do that once, he did that twice. Isaac, tricked his brother out of his birthright for a bowl of soup. 
Judah, we've already talked about. His traveling Rolling Stone ways. The dysfunction runs throughout the entire family. But a promise was made to Abraham and his descendants. And God keeps his promises not only to, but also through broken families. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Fulfills all the promise given to Abraham to make Abraham's descendants a great nation and to bless all the nations. But Jesus is also the son of David. That's what we get from the second portion of the genealogy there, verses 6 to 11. It's a quick tour through some of the kings that descend from David. He starts with David and is the only one who refers to as the king because David was the, the greatest of Israel's king, the most known of Israel's kings. Then he goes to David's son, Solomon, who was the wisest and the richest king uh, to ever live. They ruled over a united kingdom. And to David, God made promises, just as he had made promises to Abraham. And here, to David, the promise is found in 1 Chronicles 17, verses 11 to 14. There, the Bible says, when your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. And like so much prophecy in the Bible, this prophecy has two reference points. There's an immediate fulfillment. God does, in fact, take Solomon, David's son, and finish the building of his house. He does put Solomon on the throne, but Solomon goes the way of idolatry. God, Solomon goes the way of sin, and God does, in fact, remove his love, so to speak, from Solomon. So Solomon is not that true son who will sit on David's throne forever, and we get this list of kings who, who succeed David until the kingdom itself is destroyed. And you're left wondering, who is this son? Well, notice the quality. He will rule on David's throne forever. So the son of David must be an everlasting, ever-living son, not just another human being. The promise to David was, was still good. Israel, through all of these kings, were still looking forward to a perfect king, a king of kings. And in this list of kings here, just as we saw in the patriarchal period, here in the period of the kings, we see men whose lives are blemished and sometimes beautiful, or beautiful and sometimes blemished. There's Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, whose name means freer of the people. But it's striking. Rehoboam becomes the first king to oppress Israel. Or Jehoshaphat, whose name means Jah is judge. I don't know where we get jumping Jehoshaphat from, that saying. But, but Jehoshaphat continued after his father Asa put in a lot of reforms. And Jehoshaphat sent teachers throughout the land to teach the word of God. He was, in that way, a good king. Then next to David and Solomon, there's Uzziah, which means Jah is strong. He's perhaps the most famous king of Israel besides David and Solomon. He becomes king at age 16 and rules for 52 years. There's Hezekiah, whose name means Jai is strength. He was a great king in Judah. 
He would later make a lot of um, best-selling um, gospel albums. <laughs> he restored temple worship. <laughs> the Passover, he restored the proper offerings for the temple. He was the first among the people in giving things to God. He was a worshiping king. As Joash, which means Jah supports, he became king at eight years old, reigned for 31 years. The Bible says, not turning aside to the right or the left. The same thing we were just praying for Laurel. He brought in the most sweeping spiritual reforms in the history of the kings of Judah. As Jehoram, he's favored among the Rastafarians. His name means Jah is high. <laughs> Probably not that kind of high. His name means Jah is exalted. Y'all stay with me here. <laughs> you can divide each king in the list into one of two basic categories based on how they lived and how they reigned. They either did what was evil or they either did what was righteous in the sight of God. You see there, Rehoboam, Jehoram, Ahaz, Manasseh, Ammon, all evil kings. Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, Josiah, all basically righteous kings. But together, their lives tell us that you, you can take a family out the trap, but it's hard to take the trap out the family. Moving from the projects to a palace doesn't change the heart. That's why more money and more possessions is never a solution to our basic problem, our sin. It's the heart that matters. And it's the heart that God paid attention to with regard to these kings. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14, says that Rehoboam did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. Manasseh, whose name means causing forgetfulness, became king at age 12. He, he reigned 55 years, and for almost all that time, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He worshiped stars. He sacrificed his sons by fire. He practiced witchcraft. And not surprisingly, he led Judah astray. Ahaz made idols and sacrificed his sons to them. And tragically, the Bible tells us that in his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. See, the difference between the kings, it's not their failures, but their hearts. Compare Ahaz, who became even more unfaithful to the Lord, to Asa. The Bible says Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. He smashed the altars and idols that Rehoboam had built. He restored true worship in, Jews, in Judah. Revival broke out during the reign of Asa in 2 Chronicles 15. And we're told in 2 Chronicles 15, verse 17, that Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. Jehoshaphat, 2 Chronicles 17, his heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Well, the Bible tells us Jotham grew powerful because he walked steadfastly before the Lord his God. The heart makes the difference, which begs a question for us. How's our heart toward God? When God prospers us to the metaphorical palace of our own, how's our heart? And when the day of trouble and distress comes upon us, how's our heart toward God? 
Sometimes prosperity is a greater temptation and trial than is pain. And sometimes pain would make us bitter rather than better. It's for us to pay attention to what's happening in our hearts, whether we're doing well or whether we're suffering, and ask ourselves the question, is our heart like a compass always springing back north toward God? In repentance, in faith, in perseverance, in hope, in prayer. In our suffering, God speaks to us in a megaphone. Are we the type to listen or to reject him? As was said to Asa, the Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Those are sobering words. But it's good news for people who turn to God. I mean, yes, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, but was not David deeply repentant? And did not David find forgiveness with God? Even the barbarous life of Manasseh proves it is better to turn to God in trouble instead of hardening your heart. Manasseh was the one conquered by Babylon. They led Manasseh into captivity. Guess how they led him into captivity? With a hook in his nose and bronze shackles. But the Bible tells us in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. The Lord heard him and restored him even after 50 years of wicked living. That's gospel grace. See, the difference between perishing for eternity and living forever the difference between agonizing eternal suffering and finding the wonderful joy of forgiveness and the love of God is our hearts. Are we humble enough before God to confess our sins and repent? Do we turn to him and place our faith in him, in his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior? That's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The Christian isn't a different kind of person or a better person. <laughs> We're just as ratchet as everybody else. We got the same kinds of brokenness in, in our lives and in our families. We're not better people. This is why self-righteousness among a Christian is such an odious sin. It's a self-deceiving sin. We're not different, except that God has changed our hearts and brought us to himself. And we're not an exclusive club because God will change every heart and save every soul that calls upon him. Oh, it's special to be a Christian, but not the kind of special that's about elitism and perfection and snobbery and looking down on others. We'll let the world have that kind of special. No, it's special to be a Christian, the kind of special that everybody can get in on, that everybody can receive. They turn to God in faith put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these kings, failures and all, are used by God to keep the Davidic promise. None of these kings are the kings we need. Uh, no, we need a different kind of king. We need the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We need a king who is free from sin, who is himself perfect. And that king is the son of David, Jesus Christ, the Lord. 
Which brings us to our third section of the genealogy and our third point, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Savior. We see that in verses 12 to 16. David now takes up that generation that went into exile and returned to the land. Excuse me, Matthew takes it up. Again, it's an abbreviated genealogy. There are many more generations that were in exile. I think Luke lists some 50 people um, following the exile. Matthew is being stylistic here. I think there's some points in who he has chosen to, to focus on. The main overarching point is that the, the Christ comes from these exiles. The Messiah comes from these exiles. And the genealogy is proving that. Now, this is important. It's important that if, if someone makes a claim to being a Messiah, that they have some proof for it. Because there have always been false messiahs in the world. Uh, here's just a list of some of them. There was Judas of Galilee. These are all in the time of Christ. There's Simon, circa 4 B.C., Theudas, Simon Barcoba, who leads a revolt against the Romans. All of them failed. There's someone called the Egyptian prophet around 55 A.D. It's an allusion to Moses. He had 30,000 unarmed Jews during the, the, the sort of reenact the exodus called them to uh, fight against Antonius Felix, who slaughtered them all. There's Moses of Crete, who in about 440 to 470 A.D. convinced the Jews of Crete to attempt to walk into the sea to return to Israel. They all disappeared. There have always been imitation saviors. Matthew is aware of that, and, and he starts his gospel with, with this piece of indisputable proof that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is the, the Christ. And this indisputable proof is the genealogy, the paternity test, that demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these promises. I love the last section of Matthew's genealogy. It picks up with Shealtiel, the governor of Judah during the exile. He's the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the last person in the genealogy of Matthew for whom we have any extended information. You can read of Zerubbabel in the books of Haggai and Ezra. Haggai in particular ends with this promise from God to Zerubbabel. Second chapter, verse 21. The Bible says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, the Lord promises to make Zerubbabel the sign, the signet ring of what he's about to do in shaking the nations and freeing his people and, and delivering them. Zerubbabel stands there in the Old Testament as, again, a pointer to Christ, a coming king who will lead a greater exodus, a greater return of the nations back to God. So Zerubbabel receives this promise and the, the exiles leave their exile and they return to their home. But we pretty much only hear of the people from Abihu to Jacob right here in Matthew's genealogy. 
These are the descendants of those who had been in exile. They had been lost in the anonymity of being conquered. They weren't lost, though, in the memory of God. They were not forgotten. They were the broken, the bruised, the battered, the bewildered. But God remembered them and set their names down in the family tree of Jesus. Beloved, you don't have to be famous to be used by God. God uses unknown exiles to fulfill his promises just as easily as he uses famous kings. Well, that's the genealogy. What does it all mean? We've got wandering refugees in verses 2 to 6, ratchet kings in 6 to 11, forgotten exiles, conquered people in 12 to 16. And that's who God promised to save. Christmas is for the least, the lost, and the left behind. What does this mean to us? Five things. Number one, Jesus is the only Savior. Jesus is the only Savior. That's the main point, really, of the genealogy. And I should add just one more sentence here, that this genealogy is the unerasable fingerprint of God. These records haven't been kept since shortly after the time of Christ. Certainly since the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, there's not another who would be able to come along and produce this kind of genealogy. It is Christ. He has fulfilled it. And so the records have been, as it were, removed. They've been settled. They've been fixed in time. There's no one else who can fulfill the prophecy of a Savior who will descend from the seed of the woman, as in Genesis 3. There's no one else who fulfilled the promise that was given to Abraham to bless all the nations. There's no other king who can sit on David's throne and rule forever as a descendant of David. Only Jesus is the Christ. That's why, beloved, there's no other Savior. There's no one else who can rescue us from our sins and reconcile us to God. There's no one else who has paid the penalty for our sins and has been raised from the grave. Only Jesus. And beloved, if that kind of puts you off this morning, humbly, let me suggest you're not thinking about it correctly. Don't be offended that there's only one way for you to be saved from your sins and brought to God. Rejoice that there is one way. For God was not obligated to love us or save us. He's not obligated to care for us spiritual refugees and to seek after us who have made ourselves kings in our own lives and to find us beaten and battered like exiles. He did not obligate God. It's out of his kindness and his love that he has made a definite way, not a possible way, a definite way for us to be rescued and brought home. Rejoice in that and receive that for the gift that it is to you and me. Turn from your sin, put your faith in Jesus, and follow him in the obedience that comes from faith. You will be saved. Jesus is the only Savior. Number two, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. I know that's a, a point that gets trotted out a lot, particularly by reform types. You know, it just seems like the, 
your theology ain't complete unless at some point you say God is sovereign. I know that's overdone, but it really is good news. What it means is nothing stops the fulfillment of God's plan to save us. Nothing. David's criminal act with Bathsheba threatens his kingdom. It it leads to a civil war. His own sons rebel against him. But his actions did not hinder the promise of God. God is pleased to use the very woman that he took advantage of to bring into existence the Savior that he promised. Even the evil kings who reject the one true God are made in the end to serve God's purposes because in their very loins they carry the seed of the Christ that they reject. Not even the hopelessness of exile could stop God's plan. It looked like it was over. They were defeated. They were carried off in chains by Babylon. They were spread across the Babylonian empire, and they were left there for 70 years. And no doubt, some people cried, how long, O Lord? And some people cried, how long, O Lord, that other people stopped crying out at all. They said, maybe we should just settle down in Babylon. Maybe we should apply for citizenship in Babylon. Maybe we should just forget about this God thing. In the darkest of night, God calls Zerubbabel, gives him a sign, turns the heart of Cyrus, and opens the way for his people to come home again. The fact that God is sovereign means we must never doubt that God will accomplish his plan in our lives. But here's the third thing. God is humble. God is humble. That's the only way I can summarize this genealogy. I mean, the father could have sent his son directly from heaven, full grown, without any human parentage. Or he could have preserved the line of Jesus in sinless purity, were that his aim. But look at what God does instead. He chose to send his son through the line of sinners just like us. The Lord of heaven and earth descended, listen, beloved, from murderers and adulterers, from illegitimate children and thieves and beggars and, yes, even prostitutes. So Jesus might have been thinking about his own family tree when he said to religious folks that prostitutes and tax collectors go into the kingdom of heaven before you do. We have not begun to scratch the surface or to plumb the depths of the humility of God expressed in the incarnation of his son who identifies with us sinners by taking on our likeness, bearing our weakness, suffering reproach. He is acquainted with grief. He's a man of sorrows. What divine humility. And you know what this means, beloved? You can come to him anytime. He's meek and lowly of heart. He will not crush you. He will not break you. He will not snuff you out. We're his people. We're his family. He knows us, and he loves us, and he welcomes us. Fourth thing, God heals the broken. I've said it a number of times, but this genealogy is a major list of broken people, from Abraham to Joseph. It's a chronicle of the flawed, the failed, and the faulty. God knows their brokenness. 
And you know, the critical difference, again, between the people on the list, the thing that separates them is not their brokenness. It's, it's what they do with their brokenness. This is how we know whether or not we understand grace. Is if we discover our brokenness, our faults, our sins, our weaknesses, if we, like Adam and Eve, try to cover it over with fig leaves of our own making, we've not yet discovered grace. But if we in all of our naked brokenness go right to God in our brokenness, because of our brokenness, for the healing of our brokenness, we're beginning to understand the gracious character of God. He's kind, he's humble, and he comes to, to heal us. He is the balm in Gilead. He is the one who touches us in all those tender places and mends all of those fractures. He's the physician that gets to the, the illnesses that we can't reach. And honestly, beloved, we can't reach any of them. But he can reach them all. And his promise he'll make us whole. And more than whole, he'll make us new. That's how radical his healing is. That's why when the Bible talks about our salvation, it uses terms like being born again or being a new creation. It's not just that God is putting tape, duct tape, on the broken places of our lives. God is making the whole thing new. Need healing? Need to be made whole? You feel your brokenness? Come to God. Come to the healer. Come to the one who makes us new. This brings us to our final point. All of this means that the gospel is for all people. Consider the categories of people in this genealogy. You've got Jew and Gentile, male and female, good and wicked, rich like Solomon, poor like Ruth, free like Asa, in prison like Shealtiel. Homeless like Abraham and settled like David? The gospel is for all people, right? We, we need a Christmas that presents a gospel that's not just for those folks sitting in paneled homes by fireplaces, sipping mocha or whatever. We need a, a picture of Christmas that represents salvation coming to all nations. That's the point of Matthew's genealogy. That's the point of chapter 1 of Matthew, that God has now sent us a Savior who will save all people, black, white, brown, yellow, Asian, African, Hindu, whatever. God saves male, female, young, old. Uh, God saves people who are cast away by society and people who are exalted to the highest office. That's you, beloved. That's me. Count up all your deficits. Count up all the labels that marginalize you in the world. Make a list of all the broken places. Bring it to a God who will take it all onto himself and make you brand new, like himself. That's the Christmas I want. It's actually the only Christmas there is. Let us not make sugar substitutes, but praise a God who loves the broken and bring our brokenness to him. Let's pray together.
Father, indeed, we thank you for Jesus, for the light who came into the darkness to save a people for himself. We thank you that his salvation is sure. For when he died and rose again, he finished it. And we thank you that it is for us now simply to come to him in faith. And we pray that you would grant such faith to someone this morning, that they might for the first time believe on Christ and live. And we pray that you would strengthen the faith of those who've already believed, perhaps last week or last year or decades ago, so that we too might continue to experience the renewing, whole-making work of Christ in our lives. Do it for your glory and for our joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.